Hey guys, coming up is our fourth webinar with Birge Fagerli, the second one on nutrition, and we'll discuss all kinds of cool shit like omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, whether you need to be in a caloric surplus to build muscle, the things that can influence how your body partitions calories, and many more awesome stuff. So if you want to tune into future webinars like this, go to facebook.com and join the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook group and also visit sustainableselfdevelopment.com to tune into everything we'll do in the future. All right, that's it for now. Let's hear this Q&A with Birge Fagerli. Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in. This is a little bit of a surprise. We were going to do this live webinar. Oh, maybe I should start recording, that would help. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we were going to do this live webinar today. Uh, but unfortunately, we couldn't make that happen because Berge is going on a seal hunt in Norway. Is that correct, Berge? Yeah, it's this uh, kind of Viking thing that we do every year. So I yeah. had completely forgot about it. Yeah, we're gonna hunt some seals and then some whales, and you know, just yeah, maybe uh, yeah, have some virgins after that. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. yeah Berge, uh, I can see him on the camera right now. He's already sitting on his sled with his spear, and um, yeah, he's all painted up, painted and all of that, and covered in blood. So <laughs> it's, pre it's pretty epic. But um, so yeah, no, that's a joke. Um, unfortunately, something came up, so we couldn't do this live webinar. So we pre-recorded this, and we are going to answer your questions here. So uh, hopefully, you guys will appreciate this as well, and you won't be too pissed that we can't make this live. So yeah, I'll, I'll just add that uh, for those who have questions during the live uh, or <laughs> during this recording, um, just ask them in the thread below, and I will answer them there, basically. Oh yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. So um, yeah. So I collected ten questions here, or eleven actually. And maybe we will find time for a 12th one, but we will see how it goes. So um, let's start with the first question, and that is uh, regarding meal frequency. Um, and that is, you mentioned that you are only eating, well, actually, we answered this the last time, didn't we? That you're eating twice a day, and can that be as effective as eating uh, three times a day for building muscle and those kinds of things? Yeah, I'm not sure if we really answer that, but uh, I, I think... The the, the short answer is that um, if, you, if you only look at the muscle protein synthesis side of things, then for sure spiking MPS uh, more often, it tends to like hit this, this sort of a, a threshold around three to four meals per day where you don't really see any added benefits of going higher. Uh, but I think many tend to forget the breakdown side of things and, and um, from the research, using whole foods uh, instead of using whey protein or amino acids to spike muscle protein synthesis, the net retention seems to actually be better with whole food meals and even casein and egg protein and that kind of stuff where the net muscle growth is like the, the, the end result of uh, muscle protein synthesis and reduced muscle protein breakdown. So two meals, three meals even, um, with more slowly digesting meals will provide the same and, and for some might be even better results than, than just spiking MPS several times throughout the day. And this is more from the uh, perspective of, um, of hunger management. You know, you, you don't want to have these wild swings of like... Um, so so when following the PKD style diet where there's a high fat intake uh, in relation to protein intake, these meals are really filling and take a long time to digest, but they're not, like they're satiating but not filling in, in terms of stretching the stomach too much. Because we know that when you start adding in like fibrous foods and, and uh, voluminous foods, the stretching of that stomach will actually induce some post uh, post-feeding somnolence, like people get sleepy if they eat meals that stretch their stomachs. So this style of eating with like high calorie density, low volume tends to sort of feel energizing and, and make you feel hot and, and satiated for a long time. But, but I have experimented now, as I mentioned last time, with adding more like fibrous types foods and, and um, lower calorie density, high nutrient density foods. And, and so I find that I'm, I'm satiated or fuller faster with less calories, but I do tend to get hungrier faster. So 
I have sort of gravitated towards like three meals and even a snack depending on the day. But, but I think for muscle gains, two times a day, three times a day works just as well as four or, or more times per day, depending on how or what types of foods you are eating. Yes. Yeah. And, and this is a purely speculation, but typically this six hour mark is the cutoff that most people recommend that this, that should be like the most, especially if you work out, like you should generally sandwich your workout in between a six hour feeding window. But I would be just curious that if you're eating a lot of fat and especially more protein, which you will typically eat on a carnivorous type of diet, is it conceivable theoretically that you could go longer um, without meals and have your workout in between and not suffer any detrimental consequences and have it just as much optimized? Yeah, I believe it it will most definitely. And and we should also keep in mind that that sort of these fasting feeding cycles, which are natural uh, to humans. I mean, we evolved on those. Um, but within the context of a calorie-reduced diet, this is sort of what, what makes us stay lean or, or uh, let's say, get lean. But, but to stay lean, you can, actually, uh, you can actually have higher meal frequencies and you don't need these fasting-feeding cycles that are you know, prolonged fasting and, and shortened um, eating windows um, simply because that, that sort of... Um, triggers this evolutionary program of uh, storing as much as possible once you are eating and storing both in terms of uh, muscle and fat depending on the metabolic state you're in and what you've been doing um, just to sort of I'm, uh, you know it's easy to ramble on this topic but but I think I think the reason why we see the success of the early timing of meals um, instead of eating late and um, because we would, evolutionarily speaking, be eating more food later. Uh, but this is what, uh, what, what sort of, um, you know, storing fat was very essential for our survival since food was so scarce. But in, unless you want to constantly or chronically restrict calories and, and how much you're eating um, in an ad libitum diet, I, I do think that there might be some merit to more snacking and prolonged feeding windows. Um, restricted feeding or, or time-restricted feeding, like uh, intermittent fasting, is a way to control appetite and food intake. But once you're weight-stable and once you're into sort of a bulking or muscle gain mode, it might serve you better to sort of extend the feeding window and have like a more grazing uh, meal pattern with, with like uh, the meals not being so large, maybe smaller, and more spread out. That that's only a theory, but but uh, some people just struggle to eat enough on intermittent fasting. So what's the strength of that feeding pattern might be the limitation when you're actually trying to gain weight. Yeah, um, and and that extended feeding window, like um, what would be sort of the longest to which you would extend it to. Well, if, if you sort of want to make this sustainable and not go overboard um, and, and what we know about the circadian rhythm of things, I would probably not extend it uh, more than like 12, 13 hours at the most. So, for instance, if you eat breakfast around 8 or, eight or 9 o'clock, I probably wouldn't eat later than 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening unless you have a like really late workout. Then for sure you could probably get away with like a 13 to 14 hour window. But I would also ensure that you're metabolically, metabolically healthy and also lean if you were to extend the, the feeding window to that time point. Yeah, interesting. Okay, um, I love the topic of intermittent fasting and, and what sort of health implications that have. So maybe we can talk about that further at another point because uh, that's one of my pet peeves. But um, yeah, for, sure. for, the t for the sake of efficiency, let's go to the next question, which is... Um, are there any, any risks regarding high cholesterol uh, during a carnivore or keto type of diet from eating a lot of saturated fat and those sorts of things? I don't believe it, it is, no. I think saturated fat from, from whole foods are, are not detrimental. Um, and, and I think that uh, sort of the lipid hypothesis has been thoroughly debunked and, and the saturated fat connection to heart disease or disease in general has been properly debunked the, these last few years. Um, you can't use rodent studies, uh, first of all, because mice and, and rats respond very differently to high-fat feeding since their natural, um, their, their natural type of foods are low-fat by nature. So they will respond very 
negatively to high fat feeding. And, and so using the rodent models to say anything about human uh, metabolic health is, is um, you know, not, not a very good idea. Um, also, when they try to study saturated fat intake, they usually give them pure, like, saturated fats, like uh, uh, fatty acids that are outside of their normal environment, usually through oils, uh, simply because uh, mice and rats won't eat um, uh, whole food fats like that. They won't eat bacon and lard. Um, so in, in, the, in the human studies, looking at it from a whole food perspective, and especially when you when you cut out carbs entirely, uh, it's, it's like a metabolic shift that, that makes fat the primary fuel. And so saturated fats are burned very easily as, as uh, fuel in, instead of stored um, uh, as long as you're healthy, obviously. So elevated cholesterol in the, in the blood is, is a sign of poor metabolic health. It's not a sign of how much saturated fat you're eating. And in fact, cholesterol and saturated fats um, intake has a high correlation with both anabolic hormone and and uh, several health markers. So, again, there's going to be a sweet spot. So, eating too much of anything means that you're also going to have a calorie um, surplus and does gain weight. And it's the weight gain itself that leads to like insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction. Is is not the cholesterol or sat saturated fat itself. Right. And, and perhaps a related point, um, I didn't have this written down, but just any thoughts from the top of your head. Uh, what, what do you think is the implication of like whole foods as opposed to, or I guess whole unprocessed meat products on a carnivorous type of diet versus things like ground beef or, you know, even things like bacon and those sorts of things? Well, I don't. I'm not a fan of eating a lot of nitrite, uh, simply because that does have a high correlation with uh, various markers uh, for, uh, for example, cancer, cancer risk. And, but I don't think that the fatty acid content of like grain-fed versus grass-fed is that important. And I think this ties also into the next question, which is, what are your thoughts on omega-3 to 6 ratio? Um, the, the, like, the, there's... Um, there's the same amount of omega-6 in grass-fed and grain-fed, like um, if you look at total grams, but there's a lot less omega-3s in grain-fed versus grass-fed, so the ratio is skewed, but if you add omega-3s from other sources uh, like fish, then uh, you will maintain the ratio just fine, and if you also avoid any vegetable oils and all of those omega-6 foods, for instance, peanuts should be avoided as a plague, and um, just generally being aware of your omega-6 uh, intake, I think you will be fine. But, but again, as I mentioned last time, I don't think you should eat a carnivorous diet that's all meat, like all uh, ribeye steak. I think you should definitely include some offal, like some liver and, and organ meats, to, since that's where the highest concentration of, uh, of micronutrients are. So, so I, I eat a lot of ground beef myself, but I also eat like bacon that's free of preservatives and nitrites and, and um, uh, I have some like clarified butter here and there. I now also include avocado even though that's not like the carnivore approach but again I'm not eating a full carnivore approach anymore. Um, but, but just eating whole foods to satiety and um, being aware of uh, you know not adding excess oils to that will we'll, uh, for most people will be just fine. I, I, I don't think you should be overly concerned about like grass fed versus grain fed. Now that being said, there's a huge difference between countries. So since, since a lot of um, like en environmental poisons are stored in the fatty acids, um, in some countries where they're you know, not as strict regarding uh, what uh, fertilizers they use and, and how the soil is and um, treating animals with antibiotics and hormones and all that stuff, then you might have to be more concerned about getting something organic or grass-fed. But in, in a lot of the EU countries, there are very strict regulations in place to, to ensure that we, we're not bombarded with all of, those, uh, all of that crap. So, so I, think, I, I think having just regular ground beef uh, that's cheap and easy to, to get uh, will be just fine. 
Right. And so speaking of this omega-3 to omega-6 ratio, do you have any kind of firm stance on that? Like I know that some people say that you should get your blood levels of uh, omega-3 to omega-6 as close to like one, one to one as possible. Do you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, and, and, the, and the reason for that is because omega-6 uh, fatty acids are inflammatory. But again, if you're already eating a diet that's really low inflammatory on the index or low on the inflammatory index, then that's not as big of a concern as it would be in a, on a carb-based diet. And, uh, you know, look, looking at blood panels from both myself and some clients, uh, the CRP, like the C-reactive protein, which is an inflammatory marker, has dropped from, like, high normal values and way below normal for, for most of us. So when you remove the inflammation from the diet and from the body, then the omega-6 to 3 ratio isn't as important. Um, and even paleomedicina Hungary, who have you know a lot more clinical data to to show, um, they they told me specifically that they're actually concerned with a high intake of fish oils or um, fish in general due to the amount of pollutants in the in the sea. Uh, so, so they actually don't recommend that you eat a lot of of, of um, omega threes. Uh, but they do recommend that you get some liver and that you get, get uh, you know, um, eat some grass-fed or uh, organic meats to ensure that you um, you sort of keep that ratio in balance. So I, I definitely think it's something to be aware of, but not to be concerned about. I think people are too concerned about their foods uh, in general. So if that's going to be another thing you're going to be obsessive about, then you know, that's probably going to hurt you more than the, the ratio itself. Yeah. And and um, if someone is eating maybe more lean meats and wants to supplement with some additional fat sources here and there, like almost like as a convenient food, like throwing in some, I don't know, almonds or, you know, Brazil nuts or some, something like that, is that is that a concern? Is that something you do sometimes or? Yeah, I do that because, again, I'm not eating a pure carnivorous diet anymore. I've uh, started eating more veggies and uh, like berries in season, the strawberries here in Norway are in season now and just really awesome. Um, I eat walnuts and almonds and these are really low on the omega-3 or omega-6 content. Um, I have some flax seeds here and there simply because I use that for making treats. Uh, I have some dark chocolate here and there, uh, avocados. Um, now this type of diet is really low in polyunsaturated fats but really high in monounsaturated fats. So I would say it's a pretty much equal balance between saturated and monounsaturated, like let's say 40% of each and then maybe 20% at the most of polyunsaturated fats. So the fatty acid content of my diet uh, from my food logs that, uh, uh, on those days that I do just to check is, is looks, you know, just great. It's an excellent fatty acid profile. Awesome. Cool. So um, let's go to the next question, which is we already had a question with regards to how do you actually listen to hunger on a carnivorous diet? But this is an interesting one with regards to specific macronutrients. So um, do you think that there are certain body signals that one can listen to to decide if they're maybe eating too much fat to the expense of protein or too much protein to the expense of fat? Um, what, what, are, what are your thoughts on, on this one? I think people should do more self-experimentation instead of trying to copy what everyone else is doing. And, and uh, I have strongly reacted against this before when people keep asking me questions what I'm eating. Because uh, unless you're like my body weight and body fat percentage and my activity levels and my ancestry and what, you know, blah, 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 then you're not going to feel as well as I do on my type of food. So I think if you're in doubt, you know, eat, eat some meat or, or some protein-based food and see how you feel. Um, and if you notice that you don't feel as well as should be expected, then try to add more fats or eat more fats. I will sometimes... You know, for myself, like, okay, I'm hungry. I ate a meal of, uh, like, some meat and eggs or whatever. I kind of still feel hungry, but I don't want to eat more meat. So I have some nuts and dark chocolate, and boom, it's like instant satiety. And um, that's probably the reason why the, the PKD, like the paleomedicina approach with a 2 to 1 ratio, leads to such a, an overall low calorie intake simply because fat is so satiating um but for me and for people that are really active and highly insulin sensitive the protein intake tends to become 
too low. Um, so so for, for deep ketosis, you can eat a high fat to protein ratio, but as you get leaner, you can probably be more, you know, have more leeway there. So you have more protein in, in relation to fat. Whereas the, you know, going all the way into the, you know, eating only ribeye and, and the one-to-one -one, uh, ratio between fat to protein in grams, um, it, it, it does tend to lead to problems for, for some people uh, on this type of diet um, with blood sugar swings and, and uh, brain fog and lethargy and, and that kind of, those kind of symptoms. So, you know, just going back to what I said in the beginning, I think people should just experiment and see how they feel and you will sort of quickly learn what your individual protein threshold and fat threshold is and how it varies from day to day. I think the, the problem with being OCD about this and trying to read stuff online and, and articles and books and approaches and experiments is, is simply that you lose, uh, lose touch with your own body signals. So in, instead of being you know, obsessed about the ratios or grams or whatever, if this is going to be a truly sustainable ad lib type of approach, just pick the proper food choices and, and, and see how you feel doing that and then adjust as you go. I mean, it, it's not like, oh my God, I ate too much protein in relation to fat for breakfast. What am I going to do? You know, the rest of the day is ruined. No, it's not. You have two, maybe three more food occasions where you can correct this and you can even snack on, on some nuts or whatever you want to, you know, feel like eating and see if that helps. So it's not like a you know, all or nothing uh, thing. It's just a gradual kind of thing where you learn and experiment and, and, and trial out different things. Um, again, the search for the perfect program or the perfect uh, diet tends to lead people more astray than, than actually it becoming a learning experience where you find out what truly works for yourself. And, and, and this is, you know, again, the, the whole point of this group, the sustainable self-development. It's supposed to be sustainable ones it's supposed to be self-development yeah exactly like um i know that it's easy get to get into the mindset of someone is doing podcasts or someone is a, an expert in the field and then we have this picture that oh this person must feel 200 percent well all the time and he has all the answers but i mean you and i and we all still experiment and tweak things and see how we respond so it's really pointless to put any of us, you know, you or whoever we are listening to on a pedestal and and just try to copy that person. So, yeah, that's very well said. Yeah, and again, I mean, it, it, it will change from day to day. I mean, I have days where I should be eating a lot of food simply because I expended a lot of calories, but I'm just not hungry and I might log my foods and end up around 2,000 calories. And then I have some days where I'm completely sedentary and, and everything has been perfect, but I'm just ravenous and, and I end up eating like 3,500 calories. But then, like over a week, it tends to balance out, and, and my average cal caloric intake is pretty much the same. I might lean out for a while, but then I might gain for a while. But it tends to sort of uh, eventually you end up around the set point, and, and this is something we're going to dig into deeper at some point. That the neuroendocrine um, environment and the hormonal environment is way more important than than the calories in, calories out model. Um, because it's nutrient partitioning. I mean, you you want to store calories in muscle, and you want to direct or, and partition calories towards energy production and feeling better for hormonal health and, and metabolism, versus storing calories in fat for later use. And, and so, forgetting like the, the whole black box model, where it's just calories in on one side and calories out. You know, how much do you burn in a in a given day? That's just, you know, those are just numbers. They don't tell you anything about what's going on on the inside. Where are those, those calories put to use? And, and how efficient is your body doing that? I mean, we have controlled studies from metabolic wards where people, some people gain weight at a given calorie amount, and then they change some variables, the feeding window, the timing, the whatever, you know, just adding uh, hormones or, or uh, drugs or whatever, and it completely changes everything. The expected weight gain rate or weight loss rate just completely changes just by manipulating the internal environment of the body. Uh, and, and, and so just blindly looking at the intake and, and, um, and output is, is, you know, it's not going to tell you anything about your long-term progress. 
and I think it's, it's more confusing and, and the, uh, just leads people astray in, instead of to enlightenment. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, and, and when people just say, well, it's all about calories in, calories out, which is correct, but when they say almost in a kind of consenting way that it doesn't matter when you eat your calories and, and uh, nutrient timing, for example, doesn't, doesn't have any impact. But if you think about it, for example, you could be eating throughout the day and that will stimulate your energy expenditure and your need will go up or you could eat the same amount of calories all before bed and you would just sit around all day like a lazy piece of shit because <laughs> you're just lethargic and don't have any food around. I mean, obviously your energy expenditure would differ. So even though the incoming calories are the same, the yielding body composition would probably be different. So Yeah, exactly. I mean, are you constantly warm and energetic or are you constantly freezing and lethargic? I mean, that's that right there is, is going to tell you a lot about what your body is actually doing with the food. Yeah. And, uh, and okay, so this was a question that, that was going to come out, come up in, in like two questions from now, but let's knock it out then. Like, would this be the explanation that you would have for how you were able to diet on higher calories than what you were stuck on before? Yes, definitely. I mean, my metabolism is, is much improved and um, nutrient partitioning seems to be much better and, and uh, I think this is the main benefit of insulin and blood glucose control is, is that it, it naturally resets or lowers the, the so-called adipostat which is the control of how much body fat you can comfortably maintain and so I just noticed that I feel way more energetic and awake and um, like my muscle fullness is improved and I just tend to stay leaner with with the current approach whereas with the the carb-based approach even at 150 to 200 grams of carbs per day i would sort of be constantly thinking about food and have to eat food and plan the next meal and and i i would sort of look fluffier and and there would be larger variations in, in body weight and and um and energy during workouts and and energy during the day and and you know just just basically getting the body to an optimal state um, will ensure that you're making more efficient use of the calories. And so you should be able to gain muscle in the calorie deficit and you should be able to lose fat in a calorie surplus. Right. Yeah, uh, super interesting. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, now I notice that uh, my girlfriend, for example, always comments how I'm always super warm. And not just now that I'm eating more, like a, more of a meat-based diet, but even before, Whereas I remember a few years ago, an ex-girlfriend of mine was always complaining about how cold I am. <laughs> like yeah. my skin was just always cold and probably I was also burning less calories at that time, I would assume. Yeah, exactly. Um, That's my experience as well. I, I, would, I actually uh, had a, a subclinical hypothyroid condition for a while and needed to supplement, but uh, this has been resolved later and... and Again, it's, it's getting the body to the optimal metabolic state, which is signified by feeling warm and energetic. Yeah. Awesome. I think we knocked this one out pretty well. So um, how much calorie surplus would you recommend during bulking? And uh, is it even necessary to be in a caloric surplus? A topic that is near and dear to everybody's heart, probably who's into lifting. Yeah, I guess I just answered that question by talking about how you partition calories. And it will depend on, uh, you know, do you have a high body fat percentage? Because if so, uh, the sum of calories available for muscle growth is both the stored calories in the fat tissue and the incoming calories. So if you have a lot of stored calories and you're able to mobilize those calories through the way you eat and live, then you don't really need a surplus at all. Like the, the surplus will be created fr from your existing body fat stores. So, so I, I, I honestly can't give a hard number on that. I, I think it's more a function of training in such a way that you're, that you're making yourself hungry to eat more. Uh, but if you're not hungry, that doesn't mean that your, your workout wasn't effective. That probably or m may also mean that you have stimulated the mobilization and burning of stored body fat. And, and so... Again, I, I think I mentioned this in a previous Q&A, but I was able through just instinctual eating a few years ago uh, to gain muscle and, and uh, lose fat at the same time at quite an advanced training level. Um, I measured this through DEXA, whereas with constant counting and measuring to ensure that I had like a surplus on training days and a deficit and, and you know, trying that whole 
magical body recomposition uh, strategy, I was barely able to gain any muscle mass and, and didn't lose any body fat at all. So I, I think, again, if you optimize things through food and, and your lifestyle and train in the, in the most optimal fashion, then calories, you know, in, in terms of surplus or deficit becomes more and more meaningless in, in the grand scheme of things on a, on a long-term basis. Right. Um... Uh, yeah, and ju just to illustrate how much this, um, you know, that you have the potential in the f in the form of stored calories in the form of body fat, how much that applies. I just saw this really cool uh, infographic from Ted Naiman, which was lean or a high protein, lower fat diet for a lean person will likely lead to, well, not rabbit starvation, but the symptoms of that. And in an overweight person, that will likely lead to fat loss. Exactly. And, um, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Simply because awesome. simply because you're replacing dietary fat with stored body fat. Exactly. But in a leaner person, that's that's going to be reversed. Yeah, awesome. So, um, how would you what would you say to people who say that a uh, uh, that a lower carb, higher fat diet, or even a very low carb diet could never be as effective for muscle building as a higher carb diet? Uh, what would you say to those people? Well, I would say it, it would depend on the quality of gains you're looking for. I mean, you can gain more mass in total uh, if you don't manage your insulin and, 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 uh, and carb tolerance, for sure, uh, simply because insulin is such an anabolic hormone. But then you, you, you're sort of forgetting that insulin is anabolic both in muscle and fat tissue. And even though you can affect that nutrient partitioning by training more optimized um, I just tend to believe that as long as you have your protein needs covered, whether you get your energy from fat or carbs, uh, is, isn't like a major uh, a major difference. Uh, I, we don't have any good studies uh, proving that as a, as a fact. And, and uh, the number of uh, lifters who have been able to consistently gain lean mass on low carb diets are you know proof of that. Um, and again, as a long-term strategy, I think we should find something that's sustainable that you can do without having the large bulk and cut cycles that some tend to go through where, where they just gain a ton of body fat along with the muscle. And then when they lean down, they sort of lose the muscle, almost all of the muscle mass that they gained. And, and so after a full year of the bulk and cut cycles, maybe you've gained like half a kilo of muscle mass total, whereas with a more you know, in my opinion, sustainable strategy where you just approach this from a lifestyle perspective and, and just eat whole foods and, and just feel great all the time, you don't need to suffer on the way to that goal. I mean, you, you can build just as much muscle mass and, in my opinion, even more muscle mass if you, if you find a way to manage all of these things so that you feel energetic and warm and, and, uh, and, and you're able to eat to satiety constantly all the time without stuffing yourself or starving yourself yeah cool i don't think i have any comments on that one uh maybe just one do you do you have any thoughts on the idea of fats or high fat diets in a caloric surplus are more likely to lead to fat gain because fat is really efficiently stored as body fat well the net gain in in fat is again depending on your insulin sensitivity and and uh not just systemic, but also ins uh, insulin sensitivity in muscle versus fat. So the nutrient partitioning effect of that is going to depend on a lot of things, not just fat versus carbs. And carbs drives insulin, and insulin drives fat storage from the fats you're already eating. So if you're replacing fats for carbs, the net total is, is probably in the, in the long term. In the short term, you can get away with more carbs simply because they will in order to fill glycogen stores if you have that nutrient partitioning in order. But in the long term, the, the, all of the studies we have looking at the caloric surplus from fat versus carbs tend to show the same net fat gain. Awesome. Um, so speaking of carbs, uh, we talked already about the adaptation period that has to take place when you transition into a lower carb diet or a carnivorous diet. But what do you what what were your observations upon transitioning back to a diet which maybe has more carbs? So especially for people who just want to use a carnivorous approach for some symptomatic treatments. So maybe they want to treat some bloating. So they want to do it for 30 days, but then they want to go back to a more carb-based diet. Uh, what do you think is the adaptation process to going back to eating carbs? How should that look like for people? I think it, uh, it 
tends to be around three to five days for a given food, depending on how fibrous it is and how much it affects the, the microbiome, the, the gut flora. Um, some foods, you know, high FODMAP foods and, and foods that tend to rely on the proper bacterial strains may take longer, up to two to three weeks. But carbs in general, if you just go by pure like glucose or rice or, or like starches, three to five days and you tend to see a shift in, um, in the respiratory quotient, uh, notifying that or signifying that you have shifted back to using carbs for fuel. Um, so yeah, three to five, maybe up to seven days. And that's why when I advise people on how to transition back into a carb-based diet that you introduce like one food or food group at a time and give it three to five days, because the first day or two, you're probably going to be bloated and, and have wild uh, glucose swings. But eventually that will stabilize as the body sort of relearns how to process and metabolize carbs. So, so yeah, I would say three to five days. Uh, but if you just, you know, dive right into having oatmeal and potatoes and, and uh, various uh, fruits and, and berries and broccoli, yeah. It's probably going to require you three to four weeks to, to really, you know, get everything back to normal. Or, you know, if you even get back to normal. I, I know I never could. And I know several clients can't be completely back to normal. There will be some, some positive changes. Like, I can tolerate foods to a higher degree now than I could before doing this experiment. Uh, but, but there are still foods in certain amounts that, that blow me the hell up and, and just doesn't make me feel good at all. So, so again, just, just sort of experiment and, and see what happens. But you, you do need to give it a few days to, to normalize and stabilize, to, to rebuild uh, the bacterial strains that are needed for that type of foods to di digest properly. And if in doubt, you might entertain the thought of using some specific probiotics uh, just to quickly get those bacterial colonies up and running. Yeah, and uh, speaking of adaptation period, upon adapting adapting to a carnivorous diet, uh, was there, like, are there a couple of adaptation periods that really stand out that you remember, maybe that you've seen in clients which were really particularly bad uh, that you can recall? I can't say that I have. I mean, it's, it's such a huge difference between people and in terms of how how fucked up they are when they when they do this and um there's also a psychological component to this where some people are just dressed the fuck out all the time and, and worried about their body fat and their uh, appearance to the point where you know they're they're so scared of eating a certain type of food that that they get a bad reaction from that so there's so many variables involved that it's really hard to to uh point out any any particular trend right so speaking of being fucked up mentally um there was a good question here which i really really liked which is perhaps unrelated but how does burger go about changing clients eating behaviors relationship with food or habits generally uh this is a big question but any thoughts off the top of your head because i think you probably come across quite a few ocd people or have come across those in your clientele before yeah and this is actually a completely separate topic that i hope to be making a program about at a later time because it's about how you how you approach your thinking process. Uh, we tend to put magic into our thoughts in a way that what we think is always true, uh, whether it be your own body image or self-image or, or how you perceive the world. And so my approach to this is just do a couple of one to two sessions where we, where I teach clients a different way to approach your mental model, your thought process. And uh, I know that you and I have been doing this, and, and it's simply yeah. a way of um, being able to differentiate between what thinking or what thoughts you actually take seriously and believe in. Uh, because some people tend to think that all of their thoughts are supposed to be taken seriously, and, and it means something. And uh, obviously that's uh, complete bullshit <laughs> since like 99% of our thoughts are completely meaningless and we, we're thinking all the time. And so trying to control your thinking is probably the, the, what leads to the most uh, disastrous results. Um, so I, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to think happy 
you know that, that just doesn't work simply because the the whole the the, the whole uh, premise of trying to think yourself into something uh, implies that you think you're that you think that your thinking is magical or has any power, but but it's sort of the other way around. As, so, as soon as you can realize that your thoughts are only that they're they're just imaginary then you can start to become more aware of uh, things around you and, and the present. Uh, some people spend like 99% of the time in the past or the future. And so recreating a, a representation of the past, which may or may not point to the actual events, uh, and also being concerned about the future without actually having psychic abilities, you know, that, that's, that just tends to lose out on what's actually happening here and now. And, and if you want to really experiment with things, you need to be present. You need to be aware and not sort of play around so much inside your head that you, you basically forget that you're just thinking. And I use metaphors to demonstrate this. And I use various uh, processes to lead people to the realization that their thinking is not real. And as soon as you are able to do that consistently, it's, it's sort of a, something you need to constantly train until it becomes automatic. Then you stop taking your thoughts so seriously that they can actually uh, generate physical symptoms. Now, one, one good metaphor to demonstrate this is uh, the man walking in the desert and he sees a snake. And his whole body reacts the way we primarily are programmed to react to something dangerous. His whole uh, physiology goes into flight mode, fight or flight mode, with uh, uh, sympathetic nervous system uh, stimulation and sweating. And um, his whole body just tenses up and gets ready to, to run. And he, he starts sweating and his heart beats rapidly and, and just everything goes into the, this whole uh, physiology, physiology that's wired to survive. And then he realizes it's just a piece of rope. And so was it the rope that he thought was a snake that created the physio physiological symptom? Or was it his thinking around what he perceived that created the physiological symptom? And I'm just going to leave on that note and let people sort of ponder that. But, but sort of the, the, the thing again to keep in mind that are you really sure that your physiological symptoms are real or just created by your imagination or your thoughts around what you are perceiving? Yeah, and I, I think anybody can attest to the, I mean, anybody can think back at a time when something happened or they thought something happened, uh, maybe they were concerned about something and just it just consumed their entire world and they were so stressed out and Maybe a month after that or even a few, even a week after that, they just thought back at that time and they were like, oh, that's what I was so concerned about. Like, I think this is something that happened to all of us. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, and, and sometimes just... those, the, the memory of that or, or the event that created that physical reaction are, are sort of glued together with a certain set of words or thoughts or meanings that we played in our head at the time and also the physical reaction. And, and just, uh, you know, there's, there's, like a very cool method that allows you to sort of unglue those things so that you can actually separate the physical sensation, the thoughts you had, the emotions, the, the what you saw, what you heard, all of that stuff into separate entities. And, and uh, it sort of just dissolves the whole traumatic experience. And, and this is a method that's been developed by uh, a good friend and mentor of mine, Jürgen Rasmussen. And, um, he he's you know he he has cured everything from PTSD to allergies and uh, food intolerances and and all kinds of cool stuff just by having people go through a simple mental imagery technique, and yeah. and it's just impressive shit and just speaks to the power of the mind, and and it's really cool stuff. But again, it's it's just a topic that's gonna take uh, a couple of hours to really dig into. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, now you as like a lot of people look at you as a as a mastermind. Not that you're not one, uh, but just out of curiosity, you. I mean, obviously having competed in bodybuilding and having been in this fitness game for uh, for ages, have you had some really rough periods when now you can look back at those times and think like, man, I was really messed up during that time. <laughs> yeah, and that's the whole reason I'm doing this shit. I mean, 
I try to teach people how to avoid the mistakes I made. Right. I, I just have so many times during my life that I completely regret having done or having thought that way or having been through. But at the same time, those experiences led to um, the mindsets and teachings and experiences I have today, which allows me to help more people. So in that regard, I, I, value, I, I really value them, but, but I wouldn't... You know, I, I wouldn't advise everyone to, to go through that or, or require anyone to go through that simply to get that experience if it can be avoided by doing something that's more holistic and wholesome and, and healthy. Awesome. Perfect. Cool. So um, this is one kind of seemingly random question to the very end, which is what are your thoughts on the use of uh, sweeteners or, or kind of sweet stuff during a carnivorous diet? Because... Uh, on the one hand, from my perspective, I mean, you can use, for example, stevia or something like that to sweeten like completely zero carb things and you can still reap a lot of the benefits of a carnivorous diet. But at the same time, maybe some of the benefits related to a carnivore diet is to kind of reset your taste receptors and the sensitivity to sweet taste. And and also eating mainly one flavor of food is a really effective way to control your calories and, um, you know, cravings and those sorts of things. So. How do you think about uh, these these kind of things? Yeah, that's basically what my thinking as well. Um, if you constantly bombard your senses with sweetness, then you're gonna keep craving sweetness. Uh, I know people that are addicted to diet soda, so just just the flavor of it basically. It, it's not about the calories. They just you know obviously there's a high caffeine content in in a lot of diet sodas as well. So so that's gonna be a problem, but. Being addicted to that sweet flavor can mess up a lot of things on the neuroendocrine um, side of things. Uh, there's also some evidence looking at how it affects the microbiome and, and, and gut, um, gut dysbiosis. So I think like a, a large intake or, or um, you know, eating something sweet every day can fuck up some people really badly. Uh, whereas some people, at least after going without it for a long time, you, you find that you need less of it. And um, people are very different in, in whether it triggers cravings for more sweet stuff and calories or if it doesn't. And this also relates to how low your body fat percentage is. So sometimes the leaner you are, the more sweetness or even, you know, some flavors will trigger uh, cravings. Um, whereas obese people might not have the same type of cravings, um, and it's, it's related to a lot of neuroendocrine defects in, in how their brain perceives things and leptin resistance and all that stuff. But as a lean weight reduced individual, you're very leptin sensitive, but you're not producing as much leptin, uh, simply because you have less fat on your body. And, and there's a lot of uh, like satiety and hunger signals that that you have an elevated sensitivity towards. And, and so controlling those signals through eating a proper diet and, and uh, introducing, introducing artificial sweeteners on top of, on top of that um, might lead to more cravings for some people, but not for everyone. So it's, it's going to be individual, but I would say um, I do notice myself that on days where I just indulge in more sweet stuff, like I make these uh, <clears throat> dessert type things with uh, like protein powder and extra sweetener and um, some dark chocolate in there and, and some uh, avocados and nuts and all that stuff and, and salt Damn. on top of that. So you have sort of this flavor combination of things. It, it, it really tends to trigger cravings for more calories later in the day. I, I end up eating more total calories on those days than I probably needed. Uh, so, so just be aware of that. You don't need to completely avoid it at all. But uh, I definitely agree that part of the magic, uh, you know, uh, of the carnivorous diet is simply that re you remove, you make the foods more bland for a period of time until you have reset your taste receptors and how your brain perceives the flavor of foods. Yeah, so perhaps a good general guideline to give to people would be to, <clears throat> if you are just going through the adaptation period right now and you're coming off of a, a core-based diet, perhaps cut that shit out completely for a while to kind of reset things. 
if you have been adapted to it already and you're feeling really well and your appetite is completely under control and you just want to experiment with what you can get away with, then just play around with that stuff and see how it affects you. And if you see that your calories are just climbing up like crazy, then, you know, you've learned the lesson, all right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's just a matter of degrees. So if if you notice that, you know, if, if you have any trigger foods, the trigger cravings, then the best way is to the best way to get rid of that is to avoid it completely for a period of time. It's not to give in to it now and then. It's like you know giving a, a shot of heroin to a heroin addict. It, it's not going to help him at all. It's just going to maintain that addiction. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Uh, I think we knocked out uh, twelve really cool questions. So um, so yeah. yeah. Uh, do you have anything else to add, Berge, to what we've been talking about here? No, not at all. I'll just uh, remind people that if you register at sustainableselfdevelopment.com, um, you will get like a discount code and get notified of the early bird uh, like pre-sale of the programs and, and uh, group coaching uh, stuff. And, and uh, you're obviously going to get a heavily discounted price uh, compared to the the full price that, that we will go for at launch. Um, I, I don't want to be salesy here because I really hate selling, but at the end of the day, we are creating a program that I know is going to help a lot of people. And I, I really believe in this stuff and I have a high success rate um, employing these principles. So, um, so I do want to, you know, make uh, just a heads up on that. And also repeat what we said at the beginning that um, since you were unable to ask questions during this, uh, this Q&A, just ask them below the video when it's published and I will answer them there in the Facebook group. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah, that was a perfect way to close. And yeah, those resources will be linked in the show notes anyway, so you can check all of those out. So yeah, uh, thank you everybody for tuning in for this webinar and um, yeah, hopefully see you next week or so. Yes, for sure. All right, guys, hope you enjoyed this episode. And once again, if you haven't checked it out already, be sure to visit the Sustainable Self-Development Facebook group at facebook.com slash sustainable self-development. And if you haven't done it already, visit sustainableselfdevelopment.com to be up to date with everything that we've got going on there. All right, thank you for hanging on up until now and see you in the next episode.